So, uh, when, we, when we left off last week, we were getting into talking about um, connective tissues. And if you remember where we kind of situate ourselves in the grand scheme of all the kinds of tissues, um, that we talked, we spent a good chunk of time talking about epithelium. Uh, and then next is our, our four types of connective tissue. Now, does anybody remember um, what all connective tissue has in common? There's certain, it's made up of certain parts. Anybody remember? Or you're all just ignoring last week and focused on the test. That, that's understandable. <laughs> okay, <clears throat> so all connective tissue uh, is basically made up of cells, <coughs> excuse me, plus the extracellular matrix. So the stuff that's in the space around the cells, around the outside of them. And in that extracellular matrix, you basically have two things. You have protein fibers and what's called ground substance. So the, what really makes the difference in what the, what, um, how connective tissues act is in the different compositions of those extracellular matrices. That's what gives connective tissues the ability to be strong but flexible. Maybe some of them are stretchier than others. Maybe some are firmer than others. Maybe some ha hold more water than others. Um, that's what ultimately gives them the, the major differences between them. So if we recall, there's four types of connective tissue. All right. Uh, so we have cartilage, bone, blood, which seems like a weird one, again, I, I know, but it's because of the cells that make it up, uh, and connective tissue proper. So we are going to, uh, like we did with epithelium, kind of go through each one of those and go through the various subcategories, because as you'll see over here, CT proper, which we're going to tackle first, is probably the, the most complex, but if you organize it in this way, it starts to become more manageable. Um, so we're going to kind of go through each one of those, the various forms of, uh, of loose, the various forms of dense, and as we did with the uh, epithelial tissues, uh, we're going to give you one or maybe two examples of where in the body you're going to find this stuff. Okay? So, um, <clears throat> again, if you take away bone, cartilage, and blood, every other connective tissue in the body is considered CT proper, one of these six categories. Okay, and it's it's significant, it's abundant. It's there's a lot of connective tissue proper in a lot of different places in the body and performs a ton of different functions. Okay, so we're gonna go through these categories like I mentioned, the three loose ones and the three dense ones. Okay, so um, first is with our loose connective tissue, we have areolar. Now if you remember the the, the, the term areolar from last week. Um, areolar basically means it's not terribly dense, I mean, as you can probably guess by the fact that it's, that it's in the loose category, but it means it has um, kind of these uh, wispy collagen fibers. Okay, we're going to see other connective tissues where there's big, fat, dense, bundled collagen uh, arranged in kind of in rows or, um, or where, uh, in, in ways that it's going to be uh, really thick. Not so with areolar. So similar composition of the fibers themselves, right, the protein, collagen, uh, just a lot thinner and wispier. So um, there's lots of space for the uh, ground substance kind of in between. And it also leaves lots of room to be able to put other kinds of cells kind of, I'm going to use the word packed, but really not packed tightly, more as in distributed throughout that connective tissue. Okay, and so as such, it's um, areolar is actually the most uh, abundant connective tissue that we have in the body, and it's basically like a packing material. So it kind of fills space loosely between and around and uh, other tissues, and kind of supports other tissues 
um, that we find in the body. So again, the, if, you, if you look at this picture here, you can see that there is amongst the protein fibers, there's a bunch of empty space in there. And so, and loosely packed and lots of room for some cells to be kind of sprinkled in there um, all over the place. And so the kinds of cells that you're gonna see are things like fat cells, right? adipocytes, and macrophages. Do you remember what macrophages do? What's their job? There's cells of the immune system, right? Phage means eating, right? So a macrophage is an immune cell that chews up foreign debris, bacteria, uh, broken down cells, things like that. Okay. Uh, so, again, this one I'm not actually going to give you a speci one specific place because it's actually pretty abundant. You find this stuff all over the place. Uh, let's say uh, the best example would be that it's, um, it packages, uh, so it kind of wraps around and, and, and uh, encloses and, and protects organs. Okay, so it kind of gives it like a, like a you can come out and imagine like if you buy a, a package and it comes with, uh, you know, a big, huge, oversized Amazon box for like a tiny little delivery thing, whatever it is, and it's filled with packing peanuts to cushion it. That's kind of, if you can imagine the packing peanuts being kind of bound together so that they're not individual moving apart, but they're kind of together in this like loose meshwork. That's the kind of visual I want you to take away. So it kind of gives some protection that way. Yeah? Like some parts of skin count as that? Um, the deeper parts of the skin. We're going to talk about that in a little bit, but, but yeah, so the, the, under, the deeper layers under the skin um, have a similar property too. Okay. okay. Um, so next, still in the category of loose, is adipose tissue. So adipose, of course, means fat. So adipocytes right, are cells, sites, that store, that basically don't do a heck of a lot other than they store a ton of fat in them. So cells that do that, the, the most abundant adipocytes in the body are what are called white fat, right? because they look white, and that's what fat looks like when you, when you accumulate a lot of it. Um, and so, again, those are, adipocytes are, are stored, are used all throughout the body for a bunch of purposes. One is energy storage, because right? fat is energy dense, and that is one of the major reasons why we uh, have adipocytes and, and accumulate adipose is because Evolutionarily speaking, uh, we are um, we are a species that used to be essentially um, you would you would you would eat when you could, and then there would be periods of fasting, there would be periods where there's no food available or minimal food available, and it and it is beneficial to be able to pack on extra energy that you can store that you can use later when you know when times are a little bit more scarce. Of course, now in our current day and age. Um, we live in a time of abundance, right? So um, we pack on way more adipose than we probably should. Um, but uh, that's, that's, I mean, we're designed to do so. We're designed to, to, to store energy when we have it in abundance, okay? Um, fat cells and adipose tissue perform other functions too. If you take adipocytes and you, and you pack them all together in this loose connective tissue, it also gives us physical properties like protection. So the fat is a pretty good insulator. Right, so we use it for insulating purposes, which is why um, just beneath the skin you'll find one, um, you know, uh, a huge uh, region where we where we store most of our fat cells. So 50% of your uh, a, a t your typical 
uh, adipose tissue that's stored in the body is stored just beneath the skin. All right. um, so it gives you insulation properties, and it's also used for um, physical properties like shock absorption because it acts as a cushion. Okay, so we store fat around certain organs to give them cushioning and protection. Now there is a second kind of adipose tissue in the body. It's a lot more scarce. Um, it's called brown fat. Um, brown fat is not, it, it looks darker, right? It actually looks brown as opposed to white. And, and it's, its function is very different. It's not just for storage of fat. It actually burns it to create heat. Right, so um, brown fat is, is involved in, uh, in maintaining your, um, your body's uh, uh, thermoregulation. Now it's less important in adults, it's a lot more important in babies. Okay? So babies have an abundance of brown fat and then we have less and less as we, as we get older. Okay? If you look at uh, adipose tissue under a microscope, um, this is what you'll find. It's Again, loose CT, so it's, there, there, are, um, there are, of course, uh, uh, proteins that support, uh, that support it, right? There's those protein fibers, but a lot of that tissue is taken up by the actual cells themselves, which here look like big empty spaces, but what you're really seeing are big cells that are just full of adipose, full of fat, okay? So you find those in lots of places in the body. Um, like I said, um, subcutaneous tissue. So as we'll, we'll learn in the, uh, in the skin unit next, the, um, <clears throat> when we talk about that next week, uh, if you go down through the layers of the skin, you'll have the epidermis and then the dermis, and then underneath that, which is not technically skin, but which is the next layer, is the subcutaneous tissue. And that is where I was, I was referring to when I said we store 50%-ish of your body's adipose tissue. Okay, so just underneath the skin. So that's a, a good example. We could, uh, we could keep that as our, as our best example there. Okay, and then the last one for the loose category is reticular. All right, so we have areolar, adipose, and reticular. Um, reticular uh, CT is kind of similar to areolar, but the, but the, um, the protein fibers are even Thinner. I think we talked about this last week, how there are, um, there's collagen, elastin, and reticular fibers. Those are the three types of proteins you can have in, in CT. Um, so they are similar to, uh, to collagen in that, uh, the collagen that's found in areolar tissue in that they are protein, but they are kind of thinner, uh, less substantial uh, protein fibers. All right. Uh, so when you take all these kind of um, these kind of uh, uh, thin, wispy fibers and put them together in a in a loose tissue, it makes um, more or less kind of this meshwork called a stroma. And this is actually important because a, a stroma is actually kind of part of the inner um, uh, the inner structure of certain organs. Uh, and good organ examples of that would be. Uh, the spleen and the lymph nodes. So places where we tend to um, store a lot of other cells. Okay? So, so this loose reticular tissue gives us a good framework to be able to store other cells. Okay? So uh, spleen here would be the best example of where you find this in the body. Does anybody remember what the, the major job of the spleen is? No, no. Sorry, no. Uh, it's different. 
Yeah, it's different. Spleen's major job is actually to break down old red blood cells. So red blood cells have a lifespan of about 120 days or so, and when they get old, they'll signal to be broken down, and they'll often aggregate in the spleen, and the spleen breaks them down and recycles them for parts. So it needs this network of, of, of tissue to be able to uh, have lots of space to absorb and take on a lot of other cells, in this case, mostly red blood cells. It also stores a lot of immune cells as well, um, but we're not going to get into that in this class. Okay, so that's it for our three loose CT types. Uh, next we have our three dense types. So we have dense, regular, dense, irregular, and elastic. And again, remember that the major differences between the various connective tissues are the, uh, the compositions uh, uh, and the makeup of the, of the protein fibers and the ground substance. So in this case, the dense stuff is, re is referring largely to the protein fibers that are found. So in both dense regular and dense irregular, uh, you're, fine, you're seeing a lot of collagen fibers, but the difference is how they're laid down, how they're oriented. Okay? So we'll look at dense regular first. Okay? So dense regular connective tissue is, uh, again, um, largely uh, tightly packed together, big, thick bundles of parallel running collagen fibers. And the purpose of these kind of thick bundles of parallel collagen fibers is to give tensile strength. Okay? So these, these tissues don't tend to stretch very well. Right? They basically allow us to, to, um, to put force through them and, and, and not have them break. Okay? Which leads us to where you tend to find these things, which should make sense, in that this is the large, largely the makeup of tendons and ligaments. So if you look at tendons and ligaments under a microscope, you see all these fibers running essentially in one direction. And the thicker they are, the stronger they are. Right, because tendon is the attachment from muscle into bone, right? And ligaments are the attachment of what? Bone to bone. Okay, so in both cases, they need to be strong uh, and able to withstand uh, significant amounts of, of force. So what you have is fibroblasts, the cells embedded in the tissue that make this abundant amount of, of collagen that, uh, that, that uh, is, uh, has a high tensile strength and not a lot of stretch. Now there are some, some other trade-offs to this though, right? Um, when you have closely, tightly, thickly packed together collagen fibers, what you don't have a lot of room for is other stuff like blood vessels. So uh, tendons and ligaments tend to be pretty poorly vascularized, so not a lot of blood flow to them which has a significant impact on, for example, injury recovery. If you've ever torn a ligament or a tendon, you'll know that it takes a long, long time for it to recover. And a good reason, or part of the reason why that is, is because you need significant blood supply to tissue for it to heal. And if it has a crappy blood supply, it's gonna be slow healing, okay? All right, so again, very simple examples for where we find these things. Uh, tendons and ligaments. Remember, tendons attach muscle to bone and ligaments attach bone to bone. And what you're seeing in here is the dense CT of a tendon and it's just basically, if they're running horizontal, left, right, right? It's just thick, thick, thick bundles uh, of collagen. 
Okay. <laughs> Next is uh, again another another one of our dense CTs. Uh, it's dense irregular. So this is also like our dense regular ligaments and tendons, largely made up of collagen, which means that do these things stretch very much? Not really. They stretch a little bit, but not a lot. Same as kind of tendons and ligaments. The difference is in their orientation. Okay, so we tend to see dense irregular CT more as in sheets as opposed to um, uh, strips like you would or, um, like you would see in tendons and ligaments. So uh, there are lots of places in the body where this is uh, beneficial. Okay, um, first is actually in the dermis. So uh, deep to the epidermis, we have. Uh, we have need for dense connective tissue that's going to help tie everything together and be an anchoring point for the skin. So we find it there. And then we also have it um, surrounding as, as uh, what are called capsules. So uh, if you can imagine, uh, these things are, are, this kind of tissue is largely for like sheet-like surfaces. So there are places where you need to encapsulate and surround uh, something in three dimensions in like a, a a ball of tissue, and that's what, where we'll see dense irregular CT. Yeah? Could that, also, could that be like for like the junction of the temporal mandibular joint? Is that where a capsule could be? Exactly. And actually, in uh, that's a great example. Yeah. Uh, and actually, in um, all of our synovial joints, so all the major uh, highly movable joints that have cartilage uh, capping a bone that meets another cartilage cap bone, and they need to be able to move relative to one another, you're going to surround that whole joint in a capsule, in a fibrous capsule. And then there's going to be uh, synovial fluid that lubricates and nourishes that joint inside. So TMJ is a great example for sure. All right, uh, so joint capsules and then also our same kind of idea, capsules around certain organs. Um, so the kidneys actually are a good example of an encapsulated organ. So uh, protecting the outside, you have this this sheet, this layer of dense irregular connective tissue that's, uh, that encloses it and protects it. We have a similar kind of thing around uh, the heart as well, the pericardium. The outer layer of the pericardium is this fibrous kind of bag sac that encapsulates the entirety of the heart and protects it. All right. So again, um, if you look at that under a microscope, um, it's not going to look like this same it's not going to look like linear, like you saw in the dense regular. It is dense with collagen, but it's irregular. It's kind of all over the place. You can imagine it kind of like a spider web, but much, much denser, kind of in all directions. Okay, so joint and organ capsules, best example for that. And the last is, uh, the last of the dense CTs is elastic. So there are um, certain tissues that we need to be able to stretch and then have them snap back to their, their resting size. So there are actually, I said ligaments earlier, as in ligaments are usually going to be dense, regular, and they don't stretch very much, and largely that is the case. There are some examples in the body where ligaments do need to stretch, and, and some specific ligaments in and around the spine need to do so, but it's a minority of ligaments. A very good example of where you'll find um, elastic CT is in the walls of arteries. And so arteries um, are going to be you know, high pressure systems where we pump blood out of the heart 
and then the arteries have a resting size and diameter, and they have to be able to stretch briefly to accommodate the pulses of blood coming through them, and then they need to snap back to their resting diameter uh, in order to maintain a pressure inside them. Okay? And they actually run into trouble when the arteries, for example, start to lose their elasticity. We call that, uh, we call that arteriosclerosis, or hardening of the arteries, and it's not a good thing because your blood pressure will start to climb really rapidly. Um, so arteries, great example of where you'll see elastic CT. Okay? Um, and as you, you'll see here, um, it is, uh, elastic CT is organized fairly regularly if you look at it under a microscope. It's in kind of sheets or bands, but, um, but again, it's a different composition. It's made of a different protein. I mean, there, are, there is definitely collagen mixed in there, but you have a large proportion of a, of a protein called elastin. Elastin is this weird looking protein that it looks kind of curly this and it's got branches that curl kind of like so all right when it's at rest and then when you stretch it it has the property to be able to snap back to its resting size all right so that's all of our CT proper right our three categories are loose our three categories are dense next we have cartilage and again in cartilage there are three types of, of cartilage that we'll find in the body Okay. All of them have some similar properties. Uh, remember that there are going to be um, mature cells that live in the tissue. Okay. And the prefix that's, that, uh, that denotes cartilage is chondro, C-H-O-N-D-R-O. So uh, chondrocyte is a cartilage cell. Right? It's, a cartilage, it's a mature cartilage cell that lives in, in the living cartilage tissue. And remember, because it's connective tissue, we also have blasts and clasts. Right? What do blasts do? Create the cells? They build or create. Well, careful. Um, create or build is right, but it's not the cells that they're building. It's the matrix, right? So the protein matrix that the cell, that the, the blasts actually build. So the stuff around the cells. Um, so the blasts will build that, and the clasts will break that down, and there's always a balance between the two. So chondroblasts are going to be the cells that build the protein or the, the, uh, the extracellular matrix of cartilage. All right. So cartilage um, has this uh, interesting property where it's tough but flexible and somewhat squishy and sometimes a little bit more fibrous. Um, and part of, that, part of what gives it that property is that it's actually got a lot of water in it. So that's one of the properties of the ground substance of cartilage. Right? Remember we have in the matrix the protein plus the ground substance. The ground substance is going to be largely water uh, in cartilage, which gives it some flexibility. Another thing to, to note about cartilage is that it is another one of those tissues that is avascular. What does that mean? No, no direct blood supply. Okay, So it gets no direct blood supply. Does that mean that it doesn't need nutrients? No, it is still living tissue, right? You have cells that require nutrients in order to survive, but you don't have direct blood supply, which means how are you going to get your nutrition into those cells? Through diffusion, which means it has to come from other tissues and fluids that are directly adjacent to it, right? Close to it. And that's important. 
That also tells you, or that also kind of leads you into the thought process that like tendons and ligaments that are avascular, they heal poorly and slowly, right? And that is the case for cartilage as well, which leads us to a whole topic of things like osteoarthritis, right? Because joint surfaces are covered in a particular kind of cartilage called hyaline cartilage. And we to date don't have any really great answers on how to make it heal better or faster. Okay? We have all sorts of you know, advances in medicine and yet one of, the, one of the largest burdens on the healthcare system, dollar for dollar, still tends to be things like back pain and joint pain. And, uh, and in a lot of cases due to, to breakdown of cartilage. Okay, so here's our three kinds of cartilage, right? The most abundant one is hyaline cartilage. Highland cartilage, it kind of looks like this whitish, almost bluish, sometimes clearish kind of glassy tissue. Um, it's tough but flexible. Okay, so it's 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 it is rigid, kind of like bone, but it's got some more flexibility to it. All right, um, it's found in some very very important places, uh, like the ends of long bones. So when you have joints, when you have any synovial joints, so a joint that is freely mobile like your TMJ, like your finger joints, your elbow, wrist, shoulder, hip, all, you know, spine, all the freely mobile joints. In a joint you have a bone that meets another bone, right? And they need to be able to move relative to one another. Well, what part of what makes that work is that each of those bones is capped in hyaline cartilage. And hyaline cartilage, again, it's got this kind of um, hard but cushiony kind of property, uh, and it's also slippery, and so you can—it's kind of like this Teflon-y kind of uh, kind of consistency that allows the bones to be freely mobile. Right. And then again, we're going to encapsulate that whole thing in a fibrous capsule, which we talked about a minute ago. You also find hyaline cartilage in other parts of the body too. Again, this is going to be coming up in a second, uh, but we find it in uh, the ribs. Okay, so the, the ribs, right, uh, the rib joints are back here, the spine, okay, so you have 12 thoracic vertebrae, a, uh, a rib left and right in each one of them, so you have 12 pairs of ribs, they're mobile back here with joints, and each one of those joints is going to have joint surfaces that are aligned in cartilage, but the ribs themselves are bone, and they wrap around like this, but the ribs themselves don't actually attached to the bony sternum in the front, okay? At least the bone doesn't. What happens is that the, the, the bone of the ribs blends into what's called costal rib cartilage in the front. So the attachment of the ribs into the, st the sternum, the bone in the middle of the chest, is actually cartilage. And that gives us some flexibility, right? Because cartilage is firm, but it's got a little bit of give to it, so this helps I give a little bit of extra flexibility to the rib cage. Right. We also find in other places like uh, the trachea. So where's your trachea? Right, your windpipe. So if you gently poke in the front of your throat, okay, you can feel your trachea. It's superficial, and the trachea is lined in the front by a bunch of C-shaped hyaline cartilage rings that sit like this that protect it from the front, and they're hyaline cartilage, so they're firm, right? They keep the airway open, but they're flexible. So in fact, you can actually take it, if you're careful, and bend it a little bit, and move it safely. 
Um, you also find it in places like the tip of the nose. So this, not at the bridge, right up here, right? That's bone. You have nasal bones up here. So if you pinch the the hard part of your nose, right where it meets your face, right? That's bone. Go ahead and do it. Okay, hard. Try to wiggle it. Not going to happen. Okay. And if you start wiggling and work your way down, you're going to meet a junction right here where the hard bone turns into something that's softer and more flexible. Right? And beyond that, it's got some hard properties, but you can move it. Right? That's all hyaline cartilage. Okay? Uh, those are good examples. Uh, elastic cartilage. Um, elastic cartilage is, again, it's got some firm properties to it, so it maintains a shape, but it's a lot more flexible, and if you bend it and then let it go, it will pop back to its resting size and shape. And you have that in what's called the epiglottis, which is a little flap that flaps over your airway when you swallow, so that you don't take food into the airway. But the best example, the superficial that you can play with is in your ears. So all this out here in the auricle is all elastic cartilage. So you can bend it and twist it and then let it go when it pops back to its regular size and shape. And the last of the three categories is fiber cartilage. Okay, so um, it's kind of like hyaline cartilage, but then it's also got properties that are very similar to our dense regular connective tissue like uh, our tendons and ligaments. So it's cartilage, but it's infiltrated with lots of collagen protein, okay? And it gives it this uh, real tensile strength uh, in addition to the compressive strength that, uh, that cartilage has. Um, so there's some very good examples of where you find this in the body. Um, the first one is in the knee. Um, so you have a menisci, okay? Um, so your knee joint, right? This is mostly a hinge, right? And so you have the big bony knobs of the end of your femur, so they're round, and then sit on a flat plateau, a flat part of the tibia, your shin bone. So if you have round knobs that sit on a flat surface, it moves, but it's inherently a little bit unstable, right? So what we do is we have, on the top of the, of the plateau, two big, thick, C-shaped fibrocartilage rings called menisci, or a single meniscus. Right, that, that sit on top and deepen that joint surface a little bit. Okay, and menisci again, so they are fibrocartilage, which means they are poorly vascularized, heal slowly, and can be a pain if you damage them. Okay, um, the other best example of where that is found in the body is in the intervertebral discs of the spine. Right, so in your spine, you basically have. Right. Vertebrae, let's pretend that's this, okay, they have stuff points backward, and in between them, right, you're going to have this fibrocartilage disc, okay, right there, intervertebral disc. So if you take that disc and you look at it in a transverse section, so you look at it from the top down, what it looks like is this. It's actually got a liquidy nucleus. So it's this kind of pressurized liquid nucleus ball. And then layers and layers and layers and layers and layers and layers of fiber cartilage. And that's what gives it the toughness. So the, 
the uh, intervertebral discs kind of end up being this combination ball bearing shock absorber kind of function. Okay? And of course, like any other tissue and any other cartilage, poorly vascularized heals slowly if you damage it, which you can and people frequently do. And again, an enormous burden on the healthcare system, people that have, uh, have injured discs. What happens during that process, uh, if you start over time, either, either through single traumatic events or through microtrauma, start creating small tears in the layers of the fiber cartilage. Okay? So it usually happens from the inside out. So let's say you start making little tears like this. The inside layers are not pain sensitive, by the way, so you may not even notice. And you start more and more and more, and eventually once you get through a certain number of those layers, that pressurized nucleus, it starts deforming, and it starts kind of squeezing its way out through those layers and eventually you tear through enough layers and the integrity of the disc the outside of it starts to be compromised and it starts bulging okay or outright herniating so it'll kind of bulge outward like so all right and the problem with that is what what sits what sits right here behind the discs in the spine Spinal cord, right? Spinal cord and nerves, which don't like to be pushed, right? They're highly pain sensitive, and so people can get a ton of pain from that kind of thing. Yep. Um, so if, if the discs were injured, yep. were they, um, and that happens, they really um, is that treatable or is it like curable? Y yes and no, it depends. It depends on context. So what actually happens is, these are living tissues, right? So they can heal to varying degrees. Interestingly, if you look at, so um, <laughs> you can, uh, how the diagnosis of this is often done is through MRI imaging, right? So you can see MRI, you can see on an MRI, you can see how the discs look and you can see if they're bulging or herniated. Now, interestingly, the, um, the relationship between how much pain a person is experiencing and how badly herniated their discs are is actually not as strong a relationship as you might want, as you might initially expect. Okay? In fact, these bulging herniated discs don't have to be painful at all. They're actually very, very common. There's been some very famous studies where you take, um, the, you know, if you were to take a hundred people off the street that are asymptomatic, have no back pain whatsoever, no history of it, and you put them in an MRI. Um, you know, in the middle-aged populations, about 30 to 50% of those people are going to have visual evidence of bulging or herniated discs. Now, these are people that have no pain, right? So what that tells you, the interpretation of that is that just because you have that doesn't mean it ha it, there's inherently going to be symptoms. Now, that doesn't mean that they, that they are not painful because they certainly can be. So it's a case-by-case -case thing, and it depends on a lot of other contextual elements. The other interesting part is that they are uh, living tissue, and so to varying degrees, as long as you stop, or as long as you minimize the continued trauma to it, the, the body will heal it. And so the interesting findings that the worse these herniations are, the bigger they are, the better they actually become broken down and reabsorbed over time by the body's immune system. Okay. But now, how that's actually going to feel and how long it's going to take are 
really contextual. Okay. All right, so we have our hyaline cartilage. Again, look at what this looks like. Not a lot of cells, like there are these chondrocytes. And we have a lot of matrix, okay? So we have protein fibers and then a lot of ground substance with a lot of water being held in that, uh, in that hyaline cartilage, which gives it its kind of squishiness and, uh, and slipperiness and the properties that make it special. So uh, the ends of bones in joints, important to know that's where you find hyaline cartilage, uh, and also in the, the ribs and trachea. So a few good examples for that. Okay, elastic. Uh, again, different composition, more elastin protein. Um, it's definitely got those chondrocytes as well, as they all do. They have the living cells and the blasts that create the matrix. Best example of where you find that is in the pinna, right, the oracle of the ear. And the last one, like I mentioned, fiber cartilage. It is cartilage, it's got the cells, it's got the matrix. Uh, and it's got uh, a, a much, much greater abundance of those uh, collagen proteins uh, than the other forms of cartilage. So kind of more similar to tendon or ligament in that way. And uh, good examples, um, the uh, discs in the spine and the, uh, um, the menisci. That's actually, a, it, should, that there, it shouldn't say discs, it should, be, it should say menisci of the knee joint. Okay. So, uh, again, as I mentioned, uh, all forms of cartilage, one of their downfalls is that they tend to be poorly vascularized, so they heal rather slowly, and the, we tend to accumulate cartilage damage as we get older, when things start to heal more slowly anyway. Yep. And just a quick question about the, like, the spinal like, sure. Is it possible for it to bulge to the point where it is? Um, depends on what you mean by pops out. Not really. So people, it, it, people use um, use words to describe the stuff that are maybe not the best words to use. Like people say, um, uh, you slip a disc, right? And that's not really. I, I don't like to use that word, even though that I see this every single day in my office, um, because discs don't really slip, right? It's not. That's not what they do. They do bulge and they do herniate and they do protrude, right? Um, and, and it is a question of how much. Now, depending on the severity, you might see, let's say this is our example here, right? Let me draw this better. Right, so let's say that's how it's supposed to look, right? And a bulge might be, you know, small, right? Or you might get what's called a protrusion, right? Which is, so, Similar kind of bulge, but it kind of pokes out farther. Right? That's potentially going to have that's going to have the more potential to to push on the neurological structures in behind. Or you can have what's called an extrusion. Right? And it basically looks like this. So it's that same kind of idea where it pokes out and then it actually kind of goes up like that or down. Right? And those again, as far as what you're referring to, that's probably about as extreme as as that could be, or as close as it could be to what you're asking. Um, and th you know those are significant. Often cases, oftentimes, those can be the ones that are more likely to be uh, surgical candidates to go in and and uh, and clean that up with uh, discectomy, right? So you go in and and, and clean that up. But 
the interesting part again is that is that the research tends to show that the ones that are worse like that over time do tend to be broken down by the body's immune system the most, relatively speaking. Does that answer your question? Okay. So I have a question. Of course. Um, no, not their own capsule, but, but I mean, they are themselves almost like similar to that capsular tissue that we talked about in the, the surrounds joints in that they've got this dense fibrous tissue um, kind of intermingled as part of their, uh, as part of their makeup, right? Because they really do, they, they, they exist in what are called lamina or layers, right? Circumferential circular layers. Okay, so it's kind of almost like many capsules, if you want to visualize it that way. Okay? All right, <laughs> that's it for cartilage, right? Hyaline, fibro, elastic. Next is bone. Okay, so bone, uh, a medical term for bone or anatomical term for bone is osseous. So when you talk about osseous tissue, you're talking about bone. Bone has lots of different functions in the body. It's, of course, serves as the structural framework for our, our skeleton, for our body. It gives us form, otherwise it would be a, basically a big bag of goo. Um, it gives us, in that way, levers to pull on. So muscles will insert into bones so we can pull on them and create movement uh, because bones will meet in those joints we talked about. Um, it also gives us protection. So for ex a good examples would be things like the rib cage, which is built to protect the sensitive vital organs inside, like the lungs and the heart. Same kind of idea with the pelvis, gives some level of protection. Um, they do more than that. They are storage vessels as well, because part of the makeup of bone is um, a number of uh, salts and, and things like calcium and protein. And so they serve as reservoirs for things like that. So we can release calcium from bone, for example, if we need to use it elsewhere. And calcium is used in a number of other functions in the body other than being stored in bone. It's involved in muscle contractions, involved in clotting, it's involved in a bunch of different things. Um, and of course, it's uh, really important because in the inside of bones, in the bone marrow, is where we create all of our blood cells. Okay, all of your red blood cells that carry oxygen, all your white blood cells that are part of your immune system, and all of your platelets for clotting, they're all created in bone marrow, so in the hollow cavities inside certain bones. And when you're young, that's most of your bones, and when you're an adult, that's certain bones, as in usually the bones of your spine and the bones of your skull and the ends of some long bones like your femur and your humerus in your arm. Okay? Now, the thing to remember is that bone is, again, it's connective tissue. It's living tissue, even though it, it's, um, um, even though people think of it as this kind of rigid structure, it is living organic tissue. So it's got lots and lots and lots of protein matrix, but it also happens to be kind of filled in and infiltrated with a lot of uh, inorganic uh, stuff like calcium and something called hydroxyapatite. So this is again an example of being a connective tissue. You have cells embedded within a matrix. So the cells are osteocytes. Right? Osteo means bone. Site is again cell, and those are our, the mature cells of bone. Okay? So they, they live in these little pockets called lacunae. 
Um, there are also osteoblasts, which build bone, and osteoclasts, which break bone down. And this happens regularly. Bone, is, ha, bone has a, a, a relatively high turnover rate, as in it's constantly being built and it's constantly being broken down. Where it differs significantly from uh, cartilage is that bone is very vascular. There's a significant blood supply to bone um, for various reasons. One, because it's highly metabolically active. Two, because that's where blood cells are made, so they need to be transported out. The bone needs a ton of nutrients and resources to be able to support all this metabolic activity um, and those kinds of things. So significant differences there. Um, if you look at a cross-section of bone, sorry, one sec here. Um, we're not even going to really get into it, but if you look at a cross-section of bone, um, what you're going to see is it's, uh, again, very um, organized and very dense. So it actually uh, exists in uh, these kind of circumferential layers like this. Um, remember I said that bone is very vascular? There's actually a huge canal system, so a series of tunnels and holes all throughout the bone. They're microscopic. Okay? But they, they serve to, to, um, to move blood supply in and around and through all this bony tissue. And around all those canals, you have layers and layers and layers and layers of the bony tissue. Okay? So, I said on the, on the board up here, there's two kinds of bone. There's uh, compact bone and spongy bone. And it's not in your notes, but I'm actually going to pull up a, an image for you on... Google here, if you give me a second. Okay. So if you take a slice through bone like so, okay. This is more or less what you're going to see. And this is a long bone, right? So a bone that has a long shaft. And so good examples, you know, things like your radius and your ulna and your humerus and your femur and all the long bones. So um, this stuff around the very outside, okay? Right? The, out, the, hardish, the harder outer covering of the bone. That is what's called compact bone. And that's what we saw in that, uh, in that image here, okay? This is, a, this is a microscopic view of compact bone. As you get to the very middle, remember the very middle of a, a lot of these long bones is hollow. Okay, so you have what's called the, the medullary cavity, okay, or where there might be bone marrow. Now, in again, in a child, all those medullary cavities are going to be filled with um, with uh, what's called hematopoietic tissue, which means that's where your your blood cells are being made. Okay, um, now in adults, like I mentioned, some of your uh, bones continue to do that, but a lot of them are actually filled with uh, what's called yellow bone marrow, which is more just storage of fatty tissue. Okay, but either way, they're still hollow in the middle. Now, if you look at this, what you're seeing here is this kind of spongy kind of matrix of this bony tissue that is not anywhere near as dense as we saw in that compact bone there. So, what you really are seeing is this. If you take, again, a slice of this bone here, this happens to be a humerus, right? what you see is um, 
there's a whole bunch of kind of empty spaces with this uh, kind of sponge-like matrix of, uh, of bony tissue. Okay, so that's what the spongy bone is. The outer layers here, the outermost layers of that bone, are all that dense, compact bone. All right. Um, it's important also to, to, to mention, I guess, that uh, the bone has some very particular stimuli for creating and breaking it down. So um, being that it's a living tissue, it responds in particular to force. Okay? So it's important to, rec to remember that bone acts this way. Right? And in that way, it's, it's very similar to a lot of our other tissues. People just tend to forget it sometimes. So um, let's take a, a, a let's look at or talk about a just an entirely different tissue like muscle. Okay, so skeletal muscle. What happens to your skeletal muscle when you use it a lot? When you put lots of force through it? How does it respond? Remember, the body is very the body is very um, efficient, right? So we don't put a lot of resources into places that don't require it in order to conserve energy and resources. And we do put resources where they're needed based on certain stimuli. So when you say, let's use a ex more extreme example. Let's say you go to the gym and you lift heavy weights. And you eat properly and you sleep properly and you go back and you do it again. Same thing and you go back and do it again and again. What's eventually gonna happen to those muscles? Hopefully before, hopefully before that. Before, okay, let's say, let's say you're on a good, solid schedule. It's not every day. It's like every other day. Um, uh, good training regimen, not too much, not too little. What's the goal of going to the gym? What's, what's supposed to happen to the muscles? They get bigger, right? They get thicker. They hypertrophy. So what's happening is um, your, bone, your muscles don't get bigger in the gym. Right? Your muscles get bigger when you go home and feed them properly and get sufficient hydration and rest sleep afterwards. And what happens is the signaling of the force being put through those muscles is such that your body's basically saying, okay, well, I'm putting force through these, these tissues. I need to be able to withstand this if it happens again in the future. So I'm going to lay down more protein. I'm going to lay down more tissue there to make sure that I can withstand the demands that are being imposed on it. Okay? And the muscles get bigger. Same thing happens to bone. All right? The single most important signaler for, uh, for making bone thicker, more dense, more abundant, is force. Okay? You actually have to put force through the bones in order to use them. Right? So let's flip that around. What happens to muscles when you don't use them? They atrophy. They shrink. Exactly. Again, the body is efficient. What happens to bones when you don't put sufficient amount of force through them? Same thing. You lose bone density. They demineralize. Your bone has no reason to put tons of resources into tissues you're not using. Okay? So this is a problem for certain populations. Right? I'll give you two extremes. Um, the population that has, that has kind of consistently shown, the populations that we have identified that consistently show some of the densest bone ever recorded, power lifters, and people who are obese. Right? What do they have in common? They're putting tons of force through their bones all the time. 
right? The powerlifters from lifting heavy stuff and the obese people from carrying their body around, right? Now, the other end of the spectrum, who has issues with bone density? And let's forget the menopausal women for a second because we'll talk about that in, in a sec. But beyond the hormonal changes, who has less force use and force production and force through the bones? Um, maybe, but I guess you're on the, sure, that's a good answer, but I guess maybe more because you're not getting adequate nutrition to be able to support what needs to be, what needs to be done to, to support the bone tissue, and that, that's, that's totally fair, that's totally fair. Anybody, who's not putting a ton of force through the bones? People who are sedentary, exactly. People who are uh, older, people, let's go extreme. People who are spinal cord injury or comatose, can't move. How about astronauts? All right, that's a good one. Small population, very niche, but, uh, but well known that the more time you spend in space, this, the, the more obvious it is that, you, that your bone density is significantly impacted. And that's actually a big problem for when they get home. They have to take time to, to, start, you know, to start regaining some of that capacity. That's actually why astronauts have specialized exercise equipment that they'll use in space to try to, to, try to prevent that significant uh, bone density loss. Okay? Now, of course, that's also, oh, so that's, this is also a significant problem in a very specific population, postmenopausal women, okay? Because estrogen is involved in maintaining bone density, and when you stop producing estrogen after you hit menopause, then you start fairly rapidly, all things considered, losing bone mineral density and developing or heading towards what we'll eventually call osteoporosis, which is when the bones are, are, have lost a significant amount of density and are much more likely to fracture, uh, break from uh, relatively low force impacts, which is a problem, okay? So people break hips and wrists and all sorts of stuff that impacts quality of life. And after you break a hip, your, uh, you, the, your lifespan shortens significantly because there's all sorts of other complications that come along with that. Um, so there are dietary things that, you, that, that can be done for people with osteoporosis. There are medication things that can be done. You know, you can take vitamin D and you can take your calcium and you can do this and that, but ultimately the single underlying recommendation that has to happen for all of those patients is you gotta exercise. It doesn't matter what meds you take or what, what nutrition you get, if you don't actually put force through those bones, they are not going to they're not going to, to thicken up. So it's critically important. Anyway. Any questions? Okay. Uh, let's get into blood, okay? Uh, so blood is technically a connect, uh, connective tissue. It's obviously the, mo the, the weirdest one of our four examples because it is fluid. Uh, in this example, you have the cells, again, and a matrix. So in this case, the cells are the blood cells, the reds, the whites, the platelets, um, and, well, primarily the reds, uh, which carry oxygen, and the matrix is the blood plasma, so the fluid portion of blood. Okay, in amongst all that, you have all sorts of proteins. There's lots of protein that's, that's carried around in blood as well. So again, we have, by definition, a connective tissue. Blood serves a ton of functions, obviously, in carrying nutrients throughout the body. It takes nutrient-rich blood from the gut and distributes it everywhere. It takes oxygen from the lungs and distributes it. It takes waste products. 
like carbon dioxide and gets it to the lungs to get rid of, or waste products to the kidneys to be excreted, or all sorts of other things that it does. Lots and lots and lots of jobs. Okay. Very good. Easy peasy. Uh, next is muscle. Okay. So um, muscle is uh, specialized tissue that is going to be able to contract, right? So it's, it's contractile. It can shorten and create force. It's electrically active, so it responds to electrical impulses, as in um, both internal, as in you send a nerve impulse to it and it can become electrically active and contract, or uh, an external electrical impulse can force muscles to contract. All right, so you see this if you've ever applied, say, you know, electric stim to, uh, to the body, you can, you can force muscles to contract, or we can do things to force, say, heart muscles to contract. Um, now, there are three types of muscle, right? Skeletal muscle, which is the only voluntary type. That's the, stuff, the ones we can control. That's the external stuff that you see when you think of muscle. And then we have cardiac, which is just the heart. And we have smooth muscle, which is basically going to line the walls of hollow organs, like the gut, right? the GI tract, and the uh, blood vessels. Okay. So skeletal muscle first. Again, it's voluntary, which means that we can control it actively. We send, uh, we send in, uh, signals from the brain out to the muscles to allow them, or to control them, to tell them to, to contract and to move. Um, the cells of muscles are quite unique. They're, um, they're weird looking. They're big, long cells that have multiple nuclei and lots of other um, what are called contractile proteins, so the things inside the muscles that actually grab each other and pull. Uh, and the cells are called muscle fibers. So that can be confusing sometimes when we're talking about connective tissue, because we were talking about protein fibers. But in this case, a muscle fiber is an actual cell. There are other proteins inside those muscle fibers that do the work. Okay? If you look at skeletal muscle under a microscope, what you're going to see is what are called striations. So repetitive bands over and over and over and over and over. And we're not going to get into how exactly this works. That's a discussion for another class. But um, basically what you have is repeating units. Right? So um, the, the, fiber, the, the proteins in muscle themselves don't actually shorten when muscles shorten, but they do slide past one another. So basically you have these units called sarcomeres that are arranged facing each other and then as you slide them past each other and you do this in these repeated uh, um, uh, unit after unit after unit after unit means the muscle as a whole will shorten so none of the actual protein fibers shorten but they slide past one another all right so all of your voluntary muscle everything that allows you to move all of your limbs that's all skeletal muscle okay it's going to be attached into the bones, of course, to pull them as levers. And what tissue, again, is it that attaches muscle to bone? Tendon. What kind of connective tissue is a tendon? Let's come full circle with this. It's on the board. Remember, tendons, you want to be strong because they're going to put force through them, tensile strength. They're going to be dense regular connective tissue. Okay. Uh, our next kind of, kind of, excuse me, type of muscle is cardiac. So that's the heart. 
It is um, one obviously involuntary. You can't control your own heart muscle. It, uh, it contracts um, outside of your own awareness. Um, actually, um, there are uh, not all the cells, but there are certain cells of the heart that are what are called autorhythmic, which means they have their own rhythm. If you take them out, in theory, if you took them out of the heart and put them in a petri dish, they would beat on their own. Okay, um, so they're autorhythmic, but then they'll also respond to electrical stimuli. So within the heart, there's this network of of nerve fibers that send electrical signals in a very particular pathway to coordinate and contract the heart so it beats in the way that you want it. You want the top to contract together and then the bottom, the atria and then the ventricles. Yeah? Is that how a defibrillator works? Uh, sort of. So, um, a, a what f so taking the general idea that you want the, the electrical activity of the heart to be coordinated, it follows this pathway over and over and over. Fibrillation means that, that there is no longer that active coordination or the, the, the coordination of that electrical activity. Okay, so fibrillation means that um, the heart is not pumping, beating in a rhythmic coordinated manner like it should. It's, it's kind of just, it's called fibrillating, it's basically kind of shaking and vibrating and not fully emptying. Okay, so that's fibrillation. A defibrillator is going to defibrillate. So it's going to send an electrical shock into the heart to essentially kick it back into a new rhythm. Now there are, it's a complicated discussion that we're not going to get into, but um, there are all sorts of dysrhythmias, so altered rhythms of the heart. There are actually only two that can be defibrillated with an with a, with a external defibrillator. All right, uh, so this is cardiac muscle. Again, it's got similar kind of bands, but not the same kind of regular striated bands that you see in skeletal muscle. It's different, it's got this kind of more branched structure. So that's as far as we're gonna go into it today, or ever. Uh, next is smooth muscle. Uh, again, our, our other type of involuntary muscle, um, so which means you can't control it. It is contractile, obviously. It's structurally different than our skeletal muscle in that, again, you don't see the significant bands, the striations. Um, but it's, that's because it's organized differently, where skeletal muscle is usually organized in particular kind of columns or, or orientations. Um, smooth muscle is usually more found in sheets and in walls, if that makes sense. So um, it lines the walls of hollow organs, which means things like the digestive tract, right? The entirety of the esophagus, the stomach, this, the, um, well, the, here. In the GI tract, the esophagus, the stomach, the small intestine, the large intestine, all have two layers of smooth muscle in them, with the exception of the, of the stomach, it actually has a third layer. But for the rest of it, it's got two layers. So one is what's called longitudinal, so it runs basically parallel down the pathway of the, of the GI tract, down the tube, and the other is what's called circumferential, so it wraps around. So what you have is coordination of those two layers. So if one layer goes this way, and one layer goes this way, what it allows you is a movement called peristalsis, which is a coordinated pushing of the contents of the gut from one end to the other, which is what you want. You want it to only go in one direction. Right? Um, same kind of uh, muscle cells also line um, uh, blood vessels, which is important because that allows us, allows blood vessels to 
dilate and constrict. They need to be able to get wider to allow more blood flow through them or narrower to allow less and increase the pressure. All right. Next is very briefly into our last kind of tissue, which is nervous tissue. Okay, this is a big topic, so we're going to do the very briefest version that we possibly can. Okay, there are basically two groups of cells in the in the nervous system. Okay, there are neurons and glial cells. G L I A L. Glial literally translates to glue. Those are supporting cells. Um, the estimates. On, uh, so here, I'll give you the, this number is disputed, I will, I will concede that, okay, we, it's, a, it's a guess. We think that in the brain, there are somewhere in the ballpark of about 100 billion neurons, those cells that actually send electrical signals. The, the bigger dispute is on supporting cells, so the estimates are anywhere between 1 to 1, as in also 100 billion supporting cells, all the way up to 10 to 1, so maybe a trillion supporting cells. The point is it's probably a lot more supporting cells than the actual neurons themselves, and that kind of speaks to the complexity of, of certain parts of the nervous system. So the neurons are the, actually the cells that send electrical signals called action potentials, which we're not going to get into in this class, and uh, the supporting cells are ones that, that uh, nourish and support and insulate and, and protect those cells. So this is a, um, uh, a picture of what a neuron might look like. There are lots of different ways that this can look. There's different orientations. This is a simplistic one. But it's a cell, okay? It's not like any other cell that you've seen so far. It's obviously highly specialized. Um, but it's a cell. It's got a cell body right here. And that purple thing is a nucleus. It's a cell. Um, now it's got, the, the key thing is, it's got the cell body here with these little things called dendrites, which are like little tentacles that basically are taking information in to the cell body. And the other key thing is it's got an axon. The axon is this big, long process that goes, travels away from the, the cell body. And the reason it goes away is because you can send an electrical signal from the cell body all the way down the axon and it can end up somewhere else. Okay, so in this way you can communicate from one part of the body to the other and that could be sending a signal away from the brain down towards the spinal cord and out to the fingers to tell them to move or it could be a signal from the fingers or the toes going up into the spinal cord into the brain telling it that I've just touched something hot, or something like that, okay? So one of our two communication mechanisms in the body. Um, and if you're looking at uh, um, nervous tissue under a microscope, all these orange-looking things are um, the cell bodies of those neurons. And uh, you can see some axons, these darker things here. Uh, everything else is going to be supporting cells. So it gets a lot more complicated. Um, have anatomy classes that we spend four weeks talking about just this stuff. So this is a very, very, very simplified version. Okay? Just want you to know there's two categories, neurons and supporting cells. Okay? Cool. Obviously you're going to find that in brain, spinal cord, and nerves.
Let's see where we're at, okay? Uh, if you guys are okay with it, I'm just gonna finish up and finish early rather than take a break. Does that work for you? Does anybody need to go to the bathroom badly? Okay, cool. A lot of the, uh, some of the next things we're gonna talk about we've actually seen before, okay? So we have <clears throat> membranes, okay? So there are lots of places in the body where there are membranes. Um, in a membrane, um, we've been talking about tissues so far, right? And so we've already, we just, in the last two lectures, covered all the, the major, the four tissue types in the body and some kind of bunch of subcategories. Now, the reality of what happens in the body when we start talking about um, building things bigger. Remember I said earlier in the semester that this class we're going from small to big, right? We start with chemistry and then cells and then get bigger and bigger and bigger. So now that we've learned about tissues, when we start building organs, we're putting, or, 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 or really um, other functional parts of the body, we're putting multiple tissue types together. So a membrane is a good way to kind of introduce ourselves into that. So in a membrane is, is basically going to be a barrier uh, that's going to have at least two tissue types in it. Okay? Remember last week we talked about epithelium? So mostly cells packed together. So it's usually going to be a layer of epithelium attached to an underlying layer of connective tissue, okay, and particularly CT proper, so one of the one of these categories here, okay. Now the membranes, the barriers. There's three types: cutaneous. What does cutaneous mean? Toward the surface, right? The skin. So cutaneous membrane, a mucous membrane, which is going to be a moist protective membrane, and a serous membrane. And we've actually seen these before way earlier on the semester. Okay, we talked about our double-layered serous membranes, right? We talked about things like the pleura and the pericardium and the peritoneum. Is that ringing a bell? Okay, good. So, cutaneous, right? Cutaneous means skin. So, we learned last week that, um, that there, are, there are various different types of epithelium. You can have simple, one layer of cells, or you can have stratified, so multiple layers of cells. Um, and then and the epithelium of the skin in particular is stratified squamous epithelium that are filled with this protein keratin. So the big long mouthful keratinized stratified squamous epithelium, which is the epidermis. And again, we're going to take a look at that in more detail next week when we talk exclusively about skin. But here, the basics, that epidermis, right? Right, epi means above, on top of. So epidermis means it's on top of the dermis. So if you go through deep through the epidermis, you hit the dermis, which is a layer of connective tissue. Okay, so here we have a membrane. Two things stuck together, epidermis, right, of epithelium attached to the dermis. That's two different tissues that function as an organ system, right, which we call the skin. Now, a lot of the membranes in the body Pretty much all your mucous membranes and all your serous membranes are all going to be wet membranes, as in they create secretions. They create mucus and watery secretions that keep them moist. The skin is different, right? The skin is considered a dry membrane. And yes, I know that the skin can make sweat. That doesn't count in this context, okay? It is, at rest, a dry membrane, okay? And again, much more on that next week. That's the entire lecture next week is all digging into the skin. So the epidermis and the dermis and the subcutaneous tissue. Next is the mucous membrane. So it's also called mucosa. 
Um, and technically, what it means is, is uh, mucosa refers to where you find it, not technically what it's made of. So the, 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 the way to wrap your head around this and what to remember is that mucosa are going to line body cavities. They're going to line empty spaces. And they're going to line spaces that's, oh, sorry, a mucosa, I guess, um, recall that it is for protection, first and foremost. Okay? So it's going to be a superficial layer uh, that creates some kind of uh, moisture or fluid of secretion of some kind, and it's for protection. And we're going to find mucosa in parts of the body that are potentially exposed to the outside world. Okay? So you find mucosa that line the digestive tract. Okay? You have a mucosa layer inside the mouth and the esophagus and the rest of the GI tract. You have a mucosal layer in, uh, that lines the respiratory tract. You have a mucosal layer that lines the urogenital tract, so the urethra and the, the vagina in females and anything that can be exposed to the outside world because if you introduce stuff like pathogens, bacteria, foreign entities, stuff like that, you need this protective layer present to, to ward off any of that from getting into, into the body and causing harm. Okay, so protective membrane that's got uh, a sec got secretions, usually some combination of watery fluid slash mucus. All right, again, a couple examples: nasal cavity, mouth, esophagus, lungs, rest of the GI tract. They're all lined in mucosa. Next is the serous membranes, and again, these are the ones we've seen before. The same way that mucous membranes are called mucosa, serous membranes are called serosa. Remember what serous means. Serous means watery fluid. Okay, so all these guys are going to be double-layered membranes, right? So back to back, that that in between them make this watery, slippery, serous fluid. Okay, so we've talked about these before, right? So the inner layer is always called the visceral layer, and the outer layer is always called the parietal layer. Okay, the three examples that we have learned before, the pleura, right, there are two pleura, one around the right lung, one around the left lung, the pericardium, which wraps around the heart, and the peritoneum, which wraps around the majority of the abdominal organs. I don't need to beat that to death, right? We've seen those before. Beautiful. Okay. <clears throat> Last topic is tissue repair. So what happens when tissues get damaged? Well, um, a lot of these things are, um, are, uh, need to be continuous, need to be, um, need to be intact, and, uh, and oftentimes they're uh, barriers, for example. A great example is the skin, right? The whole purpose of the skin is to be a barrier to the outside world, as it's our, our first line of defense against our environment. But that only works if the skin is intact, right? If there's a breach in the barrier, if there's a break in the skin, then it can't do its job. And a, and a break in the skin is exactly where uh, you know, it's easiest to, to get infections because stuff can get in where that barrier is broken, right? Which is why if you get a cut, for example, what's the first thing you should do? If you cut yourself, what do you do first? Wash it, right? Soap and water, clean it out before you cover it up and prevent stuff from getting inside. Very good. So, um, barriers and tissues, and particularly epithelium, um, they have a high regenerative capacity, which means they can repair themselves, uh, usually relatively quickly, compared, you know, 
all things considering and compared to other tissues. Um, and there's a few steps that are involved in that repair mechanism. Now the very first thing that is, that is, uh, is going to happen is what's called inflammation. So people, inflammation tends to be a dirty word sometimes, right? People think of inflammation, <laughs> they often think of damage and pain, right? What people forget is that inflammation is absolutely necessary for tissue healing. That is the point of inflammation. So no inflammation equals no tissue healing, all right? So how inflammation works, unfortunately, leads to circumstances that people don't like because it, the how, what inflammation does in order to repair tissues ends up sending blood to the area. So it gets, it gets red and it gets warm and it gets swollen because you're sending fluid to the area and it gets painful and that's the part that generally people don't like, okay? Because people tend to be pain averse. However, keep in mind that if you don't have inflammation, you will not heal properly, all right? So when, when you're repairing a tissue, there's basically two things that can happen. You can either regenerate it or you can replace it with fibrotic scar tissue. So regeneration or fibrosis. All right. Now obviously regeneration is preferable. Right? If at all possible, you want to be able to replace the tissues and the cells that were damaged by equivalent functioning cells so that that tissue can continue to do the job that it's supposed to do. The alternative is useful, but maybe not preferable, depending on the circumstances, and that's the replacement by fibrotic scar tissue. So scar tissue, or fibrosis, is connective tissue. And what it's basically doing is patchwork, kind of plugging holes and tying together damaged tissue that can't be replaced by uh, cells that are of that same original tissue. Which means some important things, right? Fibrotic scar tissue is not the original tissue. It doesn't work how that tissue did. If anybody has ever seen or has, say, a big scar on their skin, okay, that scar doesn't look or act or feel like skin. It doesn't stretch like skin. It doesn't grow hair. It doesn't sweat like skin. It's not skin. Right? It's not epidermis. It is fibrotic scar tissue. Okay? So it's filling a hole, plugging it up, attaching broken ends of skin together where it can't be adequately replaced by, by functioning skin cells. Okay? <clears throat> so what happens in tissue repair? Right? Step one, inflammation. Inflammation is, is uh, we're going we're gonna to simplify it, but inflammation is signaled by tissue damage. Okay? Anytime there is any tissue damage at all, cells are broken in some way, blood vessels are damaged in some way, and that doesn't necessarily mean big visible blood vessels. Remember that you have little blood vessels called capillaries that permeate all tissues because they all need nutrients and blood. So as soon as you damage tissues and, and uh, blood vessels, um, chemicals are released from those damaged cells. And those chemicals signal other chemicals to come to that area and cells of the immune system. That is what initiates inflammation. Okay. <laughs> now, the uh, important things that happen during that time include things like <laughs> sending more blood to the area and making the local blood vessels leaky so that blood can leak out and get into the tissue to get all the chemicals and cells that into that damaged tissue to help repair it. Because again, the goal of this whole process is eventually tissue repair. 
right? <clears throat> so during that time, part of what happens when you damage blood vessels is you initiate clotting, right? Because we don't want blood vessels to leak too much because we want blood to stay in the blood vessels. So um, we're going to have a clot. <clears throat> so blood is going to coagulate, right? We use things like platelets and can create basically a clump, a clot that's going to plug that initial uh, hole, plug that initial damaged tissue. Okay? Um, a blood clot is not meant to be permanent. It's meant to be a temporary measure to prevent further bleeding, right? further loss of blood, and it uh, essentially creates a temporary barrier of sorts to plug that hole. All right. <laughs> now, <laughs> what should happen after that is organization. So basically, the body is going to essentially create new blood vessels that are going to supply that tissue, uh, and we're going to send uh, we're going to send resources into that damaged region and we're going to create something called granulation tissue. So granulation tissue, you can think of it like a proto-scar tissue. So it's like, it's like scar tissue but not. It's not fibrotic the way mature fibrosis is, but it's, it's a temporary measure. Okay. Uh, now the purpose of all that is to regenerate the damaged cells. In this case we're talking about uh, superficial wound right, in the skin, so we're talking about epidermis. But remember that tissue healing occurs in a similar fashion anywhere in the body if there's damage somewhere. Alright, so in this case we're going to start to re send resources to the area and regenerate new epithelial cells. Right. Now, those epithelial cells need to be anchored and tied in and, and to the underlying connective tissue which was damaged, and so there is going to be new connective tissue built, which means fibroblasts are going to have to get in there and anchor all these cells to this new, right, because normally you have this underlying connective tissue onto which the epidermis, the skin, is anchored, so you have to build new connective tissue to anchor those new cells. Okay? We have all sorts of cells of the immune system that come in and clean up the junk. Okay? Phagocytosis. Right? Phagocytosis means cell eating. So immune cells come in and they chew up any foreign debris, any broken cells, and any uh, foreign organisms like bacteria that may have happened to have gotten in during the, the breach of that skin. Okay? So here's that number two showing <laughs> a beginning of that organization. Right, we get some granulation tissue, we get some new fibroblastic activity, some connective tissues being rebuilt, okay, and with the beginnings of regenerated epithelium. <clears throat> Third step is where uh, kind of you can go in, in two directions, right? You can either have regeneration or fibrosis, and some of this is going to depend on how quickly the the uh, the repair happens. Some of it's going to uh, some of it's going to depend on how possible it is, right? So we're not going to get into the details of what's called first and second intention healing, but what you want is if you have a cut, right? The best way to let it, to get a cut to heal is to have the broken ends of that cut approximated, right? As close together as you can. Right? So in a in a small cut, this isn't really a big deal, right? You kind of cover it up with a band-aid and it's basically going to be, the two ends are going to be pretty close together and they'll heal probably fine. If you have a bigger cut or a more substantial one, that's when we start using things like stitches or staples or glue or things like that, stereo strips, things that are going to keep the two broken ends 
close together, so it gives it the best shot of healing as possible. If that happens, then the, then the scarring is, and, and the healing happens adequately, then the scarring can be relatively minimal, and, and you can replace a lot of those damaged tissue, or damaged cells with new functioning cells. But if the two ends of the, of the, of the break are too far apart, the only option is going to be to fill in that empty space with scar tissue, right? Fibrosis. And remember that fibrosis and fibrotic scar tissue is more connective tissue than it is epithelium. And so it's not functioning tissue. It doesn't work like skin. It's not technically skin. Okay? So all that's going to depend on how well that healing process goes. Okay? And so ultimately the goal is of course to have that regenerated epithelium superficially that is going to be uh, replacing the, the damaged skin cells and function as those skin cells should. Now that leads us to what allows something to heal well or not so well. Well, certain tissues heal well. Uh, epithelium, like skin, tends to heal well. Bone tends to heal well. Um, dense irregular connective tissue, areolar tissue, tends to heal well. The theme here is vascular. All those cells have good blood supply. And if you have a good blood supply and you get the nutrients and the inflammatory chemicals and cells into the tissue quickly and adequately, it will have the best chance of healing. Cells that kind of regenerate okay, smooth muscle, so guts and blood vessels, dense regular connective tissue, like tendons and ligaments, tissues that <laughs> don't heal very well, heart, nervous system. So a lot of those, if you, there's very little regenerative capacity. Right? In those organs, basically what you have is fibrosis, which means if you cause damage to those cells, they're not coming back. Right? And you can patch up the, patch up the damaged regions with scar tissue, but you're going to have some deficits. Right? They will not function the way it used to. So a heart that has had a heart attack, it's got an area of fibrosis, it's going to be weaker than it used to be. It's going to have weak areas. Damaged nervous system, maybe you lose some motor function, maybe you lose some sensory function, maybe you lose some smell or vision or taste or whatever it is, that, whatever the, the particular cells that it is that you lost, a lot of times they're not coming back. Okay. And again, we've been using the we've been using the uh, the visual of a, of skin because it's easy to visualize and it and it tends to be one of those areas that heals well. But remember that tissue damage and therefore scarring happens everywhere. Happens wherever tissue damage occurs, which can be internal. It can be any tissue that you can imagine. And there's a million and one ways to damage tissue, right? Physical trauma, chemical damage. Um, ischemia, as in choking off the blood supply, um, all sort, you know, heat, cold, all sorts of different ways that you can damage tissues, and it doesn't just apply to skin. So the same process to, um, happens more or less uh, anywhere that tissue damage occurs, which means that scarring and and loss of function can occur anywhere throughout the body where tissue damage happens. Okay. One last, I guess, one last brief topic would be think, uh, adhesions. Um, the best way I can help visualize this for you is that um, the scar tissue, sometimes fibrosis acts like you're laying down, uh, so you have like a, you have a hole to fill and you're laying down spider web across it, 
Okay? So you lay down fibrotic scar tissue and it kind of just grabs onto everything that it can. Okay? And, and kind of kind of like a like a, a meshwork or, or a spider web. Um, now that means that sometimes inadvertently scar tissue can attach to things together that are not supposed to be held together. And so you can develop what are called adhesions. And this can happen in the skin, right? If you have a real significant scar, sometimes it can be tacked down to the underlying tissue and it can make it harder to bend a joint or harder to move skin. If it happens inside, uh, if it happens to say, for example, the GI tract, you can cause adhesions of loops of, of gut or bowel together and that can cause obstruction. So there's all sorts of uh, potential consequences of this. Again, it's a totally normal process. It is meant to protect you. It's meant to help heal and, 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 uh, and prevent further damage, uh, further insult, but sometimes it doesn't go perfectly. All right, <clears throat> that's it. That is our tissue unit. We'll come back next week. We'll review the tests and we'll do skin, and then that's it for your next test. I will see you next Wednesday. <laughs>